0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend Enemy at the Gates by William Craig. Craig weaves together both the grand narrative and a series of personal stories in his telling of the Battle of Stalingrad, one of the most important moments in the war between the Nazis and the Soviets. It's masterfully written and a deeply tragic look at this critically important moment in the history of World War II go to audibletrial.com/japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 135, The Fall of the Samurai, part 18. This week, we're going to move on to two of the most momentous decisions of the early Meiji period, both of which are going to go a long way towards beginning, the end, of our story here. The first is easily the most important domestic reform of the Meiji Restoration, the decision to abolish feudalism. Now, what to do about Japan's political organization had been a hot-button topic for years, On the one hand, both technocrats and liberals saw things in a fairly cut-and-dried way. In order to survive, Japan has to modernize. Well, what does that mean? Well, they had to become more like European countries, and what did that mean? Well, when France became a modern state during the French Revolution, what had it done? It had abolished feudalism with the August Decrees of 1789. The British, they'd passed all those Reform Acts. The Americans, well, their whole shtick is about rebelling against the feudalistic oppression of their natural liberties. Conversely, what states were considered backward or unmodern by European standards? Russia or the Ottoman Empire, both of which still held on to a distinctly pre-modern style of social and political organization. So the equation is pretty simple. Feudalism equals antiquated, getting rid of feudalism equals modern. On the other side of things were conservatives, like Saigo Takamori, who, well, not full-blown defenders of the old order, were at least possessed of enough nostalgia to defend aspects of it. So, for example, they ask, what is going to become of all the daimyo to whom we've all pledged our samurai loyalty if feudalism is abolished? Immediately after the Meiji Restoration, remember, an administrative map of Japan would have looked like quite the hodgepodge. About three-fourths of the land was governed in the old way, by individual lords who ruled in a manner relatively unchanged from 1600. The last quarter, the part that had once been Tokugawa land, belonged directly to the imperial house, which was quite an improvement from its pre-1868 stipend, which had been barely better than a low-ranking daimyos. This land was governed by centrally appointed governors. This is obviously not a long-term, workable solution. To have different parts of the same country subjected to different levels of government authority would only make the decision-making and governing process a complete mess. But what could be done to fix it? For a few years, the answer was not clear. In fact, in dealing with the chaos of war and post-war reorganization, the Meiji government redistricted some old domains and actually created 20 new ones in a manner that seemed to suggest that feudalism might be around for a good while yet. After all, why create new domains if you're about to abolish all of them? Indeed, immediately following the Boshin War, the government had taken several steps to perpetuate the feudal system. It had taken over domain registers, once controlled by the Tokugawa, and used to determine the value of each domain. It had also given a small territorial allotment to the Tokugawa family, a move designed both to signal the possibility of mercy for Tokugawa supporters, and to reassure the anxious that feudalism was not going anywhere. Now, what ultimately brought down feudalism, very suddenly, I might add, was, simply put, the issue of taxes. Remember, most of these domains were constantly in debt. A scholar named Mark Ravina estimated that the average Tokugawa domain was going 15% over budget every single year, something that can add up really quickly. As a result, by the early Meiji period, the average domain was in debt up to its proverbial eyeballs, and the daimyo wanted a way out. Cutting costs was not really an option. These daimyo were responsible for too much that was not cuttable, and samurai stipends had already been cut down to the bone. Really, the only option would be to have the central government absorb the debt somehow, but the only way the government would do that would be if it got control of the domain in exchange. Still, for most daimyo, that's a pretty solid trade. Sure, they wouldn't technically be feudal lords anymore, but they wouldn't have all that debt weighing them down either. As a result, by early 1871, some domains had actually requested that they be voluntarily absorbed by the central government in exchange for the government taking over their debt. When presented with this kind of bargain, the Meiji leadership seems to have really liked it, and began considering a plan to extend the same offer to all domains across Japan. Taking the lead on this initiative was Okubo Toshimichi of Satsuma, who was personally very devoted to the idea of a centralized and powerful government and fairly hated in his home domain as a result. He was protected, more than anything, by his friendship with everybody's favorite war hero, Saigo Takamori. Now, here's where things get a little spotty, because the discussions involved were not well recorded. The reason for that was likely personal security. After all, if word got out that the abolition of feudalism was being discussed, well, some samurai might not take that well. Some might take it so badly that they'd try to assassinate a major government leader. Certainly, it had happened before. Remember, Omuro Masajiro had been assassinated just for talking about conscription. Still, we can speculate at the motives of the major players. For the imperial court, and for true believers in central government like Okubo Toshimichi, the answer's pretty obvious. Under the current system, the imperial court was totally dependent on the contributions of feudal domains. It couldn't control the country without cooperation from the daimyo. That really limited the court's ability to shape policy, and it also raised the ugly specter of what might happen if the interests of the court and a major domain, like Satsuma or Choshu, ever diverged. Civil war? A new shogunate led by Satsuma or Choshu or both? It was certainly possible, and major leaders at the imperial court like Sanjo Sanatomi and Iwakura Tomomi expressed concern to that effect in their private papers. The only way the court could ever be secure and really create a strong central government would be by consigning feudalism to the dustbin of history. But what about the other members of the leadership? Curiously, few of them seem to have been inclined to directly resist the new policy. Why somebody like, say, Saigo Takamori would accept it is a bit of a mystery, and since he was never one for writing down his thoughts, it's really hard to say. Perhaps he felt that a truly imperial government would require reform along these lines, we can't really be sure. The upshot of it all was that these men were able to convince their daimyo to lead things off. The daimyo of Choshu Mori Takachika and the daimyo of Satsuma Shimazu Tadayoshi both announced in 1869 their intention to return control of their domains to the imperial government. Tosa and Hizen followed shortly thereafter. Again, we don't know what was said to the daimyo to convince them, Presumably some combination of appeals to their patriotism and promises that under the new system their prestige would not be diminished. Regardless of what convinced these four daimyo to go along with the plan, the fact that they did made the final end of feudalism in Japan more or less inevitable. You see, every other lord in Japan now had to deal with some pretty simple mental calculations. 1. I can't beat the combined forces of Satsuma, Choshu, Tosa, and Hizen. Two, those forces are now even more effective because they're all under control of the same central government. Three, if the government comes to take my land, I can no longer stop them. Four, I might as well volunteer to give it and at least use the chance to get in good with the new boss. Over the next year and a half, most of the major daimyo in Japan ran this mental calculation, came to the same conclusion, and made the same decision. By 1871, most of the domains had been abolished or, in the language of the court, returned to the emperor. Only a few holdouts remained, and in July 1871, the central government issued an order putting an end to the idea that handing over your domain was voluntary. The remaining holdouts were told to either hand over control of their territory or face the armies of the government. Now, in the beginning, this change did not do much to make the system much more efficient. 300 prefectures were established to replace the existing 280 or so domains in order to ensure that all of the old daimyo got a seat as a provincial governor, as well as a few choice appointees from the court. However, as you might imagine, that proved a little unwieldy. The next year, 1872, these 300 prefectures were pared down to 80, and in 1888, one final reform reduced the number to 44 prefectures and 3 urban prefectures for a grand total of 47 that, with some minor renaming and reorganizing, are still in use today. Now, this deal proved better for some than for others. For the daimyo, it's pretty solid. Even when they were eventually removed as provincial governors, well, it wasn't like most of the daimyo had done much in the way of governing in the first place. The vast majority had relied on their counselors to do all the heavy lifting in the government anyway, so it wasn't like not having political power was much of a change. For the few that were politically inclined, well, they could always find a job in the central government or start a business, most could just enjoy the fruits of being born rich. Besides, in return for the voluntary return of their domains, Daimyo received a stipend from the government and had all their debts wiped out. They were also inducted into the highest levels of a new peerage being set up by the Meiji government, modeled on that of the United Kingdom. This new peerage would have two levels. The Kazoku, broadly similar to the Lords, as in the House of Lords of the UK, which would take as its members all of the old daimyo and members of the old Kyoto aristocracy. The second level were the Shizoku, broadly equivalent to knights composed of the old samurai. These two levels of peerage would endure until 1947, when they're going to be abolished by the US occupation. So, overall, it's not a terrible deal for your daimyo. For the central government, it's actually kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, by 1871, the new government had direct control over the entire country, something that no government in Japan had ever accomplished before. On the other, making that happen had required taking on an absolutely tremendous financial burden. In addition to the stipend paid to all of the daimyo, the government now had to pay samurai stipends as well. Remember, every single adult male samurai is entitled to a stipend based on his rank, and now that the Tokyo government had taken over the burdens of the domains, paying that stipend was a responsibility of Tokyo. Each domain printed its own currency as well, and part of the takeover deal included the Tokyo government agreeing to convert that currency on face value. So, and I'm just going to make this example up, if Satsuma had 3 million Satsuma bucks in circulation, the takeover would result in all 3 million Satsuma bucks being converted into 3 million of the new central government currency introduced in 1871, called the yen, which simply means round object. This was an extraordinary financial burden for the government to take on, and it's the chief reason why, eventually, a government composed almost entirely of samurai is going to decide that it can no longer afford to have a samurai class. This is probably not what most of the people who supported the decision had in mind when it first came up. It certainly was not what Saigo Takamori had in mind. But in many ways, the abolition of the samurai is a natural result of the decision to abolish feudalism. A centralized system of government made the final bastion of feudalism, the existence of a privileged warrior class, fundamentally unworkable. Something was going to have to give. We'll discuss exactly what steps were taken to deal with this financial burden and put an end to the samurai class next episode. For now, I want to switch gears and talk about the other big achievement of the early Meiji government. This is, of course, the Iwakura mission, named for its chief sponsor, Iwakura Tomomi. Iwakura was part of the old Kyoto aristocracy, and had been an active anti-Tokugawa agitator at the imperial court since the days of fighting over the Harris Treaty back in 1858. God, remember that. Iwakura was one of the oldest surviving people in the new government at the ripe old age of 41, which, by the way, really helps drive home how young all these people are. By comparison, as right now, 2016, President Obama is a young world leader at 54, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo of Japan is 61. Now, both because of his seniority and because of his long service to the loyalist cause, including having to flee Kyoto twice to avoid being arrested by the shogunate, Iwakura was given a high-ranking position in the new government. However, while Iwakura ended up leading this diplomatic mission, it was not actually his idea. The idea actually came from a Dutchman named Guido Verbeck. Verbeck is someone I really wish I could spend more time on, because he's a really interesting dude. He was a Dutchman who moved to the U.S. to work as a civil engineer, living in areas as far-flung as Green Bay, Wisconsin, and this before they had the Packers to make the place more interesting, as well as Alabama. In 1858, Verbeck contracted cholera. On his deathbed, he promised that if he recovered, he would become a missionary. And lo, miraculously, did he recover his health. A man of his word, Verbeck entered a seminary in upstate New York. He first came to Japan as a missionary for the Dutch Reformed Church in 1859 and ended up living in Nagasaki. While there, he opened up a school part time to support himself, where he taught Western languages, history, engineering, that kind of thing. That school became massively successful. In particular, samurai from nearby Hizen domain including a future Meiji leader, Okuma Shigenobu, were common sights at Verbeck's academy. As a result, when the Meiji government was looking for foreigners to act as paid advisors, Verbeck's name came up early. Now, Verbeck suggested an embassy to serve three purposes. First, it would boost Japan's profile abroad. Essentially, it would be free publicity. Two, it would be an opportunity to reach out and push for the renegotiation of the unequal treaties, on the grounds that now that Japan had a government committed to modernizing, those treaties were no longer necessary. Three, this mission would serve as an opportunity to observe Western countries up close rather than from a distance, and absorb potentially useful lessons from them. As a model, Verbeck probably had in mind the Grand Embassy of Peter the Great who, as the Tsar of Russia, had gone to Western Europe in 1697 with the goals of, among other things, bringing back useful ideas to modernize his domain, as well as drinking the entire nations of the Netherlands and England under the table. The result had been a tremendous success for Imperial Russia, which had rapidly modernized and become a major player in European politics though Peter's early death and the failure of some of his successors to follow up on his ideas meant that Russia did eventually fall back behind the rest of Europe in terms of technology and organization. Still, it had worked for a while for Peter, so here was a feat that the Meiji leadership could look to and try and replicate. The idea proved popular with the Meiji leadership, but there was one major issue that had to be dealt with before it got off the ground. For any expedition to the West to be taken seriously, especially one aiming at renegotiating the Unequal Treaties, major members of the government would have to go along with. But taking those people out of government would upset the delicate factional balance that had kept the government stable. And make no mistake, that factional balance still really matters. On paper, the old domains might not exist anymore, but most samurai still feel strong allegiance to them. Choshu and Satsuma no longer had daimyo anymore, but the old daimyo families were still influential, and the prefectures that replaced Satsuma and Choshu domains were more or less territorially contiguous with the old domains, Kagoshima and Yamaguchi prefectures, if you're curious. Even though the old domains are gone, domain politics and identification with one's ancestral domain is going to be a feature of Japanese politics well into the 20th century, something we're going to talk about at the end of the series. But anyway, the issue of balance between domains was a pretty big one for the expedition, and in the end, it was solved with what was objectively a pretty bad stopgap measure. About half of the government's leadership would go on this expedition, the other half would remain in Japan. To prevent the half that stayed behind from essentially dictating policy for the next several years, the two groups agreed that no new policies could be implemented during this time. Policies would either have to continue projects already decided on before the expedition began, or be purely reactive in dealing with domestic or foreign problems. This was, simply put, a terrible compromise, because it's the kind of thing that is naturally going to get bogged down into debates over what is or is not a new policy, or when a policy stops becoming reactive and starts becoming proactive. In other words, what does or does not violate this agreement is really ambiguous, and this is going to come around to bite the Meiji leadership, as we'll see next week. The compromise thus in place, the Meiji government split up. Iwakura Tomomi would head the mission as Japan's envoy extraordinary. His status as elder statesman, the emperor's trust in him, and his high court rank made him a natural fit. Accompanying him would be a large chunk of government ministers, including two from Choshu, Ito Hirobumi and Kido Takiyoshi, and one from Satsuma, Okubo Toshimichi. The caretaker government that stayed behind in Japan would be dominated by Saigo Takamori, with assistance from Itagaki Taisuke of Tosa, Yamagata Aritomo of Choshu, and Okuma Shigenobu and Eto Shimpei of Hizen. On December 23rd, 1871, the Iwakura mission left Yokohama for the U.S. West Coast, having chartered an American mail ship called, fittingly enough, the SS America. Now, I spent some time debating how much I wanted to talk about the Iwakura mission, and in the end, I decided to truncate the actual mission pretty substantially. The whole thing lasts about two years, but we're only going to deal with it in brief through the rest of this episode. Why? Well, one of the chief goals was to renegotiate the Unequal Treaties, and that process was long, complicated, drawn out, and ended in every single case, with the Western powers saying, no thank you, we like things as they are. To approach things from a less cynical perspective, the Western powers were not yet convinced of the modernizing zeal of the Japanese government. Or, from a more cynical perspective, look, we really rang these concessions out of you at gunpoint, fair and square, and we're not done taking advantage of them yet. And really, guys, anybody could tell you that's how it was going to go. As if a bunch of cynical political types are just going to give you back full equality under international law, what, out of the goodness of their hearts? Meanwhile, the profile-boosting part of the mission is pretty straightforward and doesn't require that much explanation. As is always the case with diplomatic missions, wherever the Iwakura mission members went, they were greeted with celebrations, dances, ceremonies, and all that kind of stuff, which was reported in the news, which in turn helped people realize that, hey, something weird is going on in that their Japan place. Didn't they, like, overthrow their king or something? And now they're all buying Western technology and hiring Western experts? Well, that's interesting, but I doubt much will come of it. This leaves us with really only two things I want to talk about to highlight during the expedition. The first is what ends up being its most important legacy, the careful notes the participants took about Western societies, which end up laying the groundwork for a lot of future Meiji reforms. The second is a far more pernicious legacy, the outright racism encountered by the expedition. The notes from the expedition really provided the basis for why it matters. Over the course of their travels, the mission visited a substantial portion of the globe. They went over the Pacific to the US, then across the country by rail to DC, then over to Europe to visit the UK, France, Belgium, Russia, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden, Austria Hungary, and Italy, before returning via Egypt, then Aden, Ceylon, Singapore, Saigon, Hong Kong, and Shanghai ultimately putting back into Yokohama on September 13, 1873, 22 months after they left. Along the way, mission members took careful notes of everything they saw. The entire expedition was basically shopping for blueprints for different parts of the New Japanese Society. Mission members were pretty explicit about this goal, as is shown by an excerpt from the letter the mission turned over to U.S. President Ulysses Grant. Quote, it is our purpose to select from the various institutions prevailing among enlightened nations such as are best suited for our present conditions, and adapt them in gradual reforms and improvements of our policy and customs so as to be upon equality with them. With this object we desire to fully disclose to the United States government the condition of affairs in our empire, and to consult upon the means of giving greater efficiency to our institutions at present and in the future. And as soon as the said embassy returns home, we will consider the revision of the treaties and accomplish what we have expected and intended. Of course, not all the observations of Western society were high-minded. Ito Hirabumi, for example, had to provide a demonstration to other mission members of how to use a Western-style toilet, thankfully with his pants still on. Other moments for the mission were less comical and more revelatory. The mission historian, Kume Kunitake, wrote in his diary about how utterly stunned he was by the sheer scale of the city of London and the number of people on the street, so much so that when he first sailed up the Thames and saw the city, all he could do was stare. Some of what the mission saw helped drive home how much things have changed the last couple of years. Witness one Nabeshima Nabehiro, who, up until a few years ago, had been the daimyo of Hizen. Now that he was freed of that responsibility, he had come to London and was going to university. The mission members tracked him down in a small student house in the neighborhood of Bayswater, where presumably he insufferably quoted to them the things he learned in lecture that day while drinking his latte. The mission observations are really pretty interesting, especially if you know anything about European history, because the mission members recorded their impressions of the people they met along the way. For example, they were all very impressed by the austere grandeur of Queen Victoria, but found the business-like sensibilities of King Leopold II of Belgium crass and irritating. Maybe at some point I'll expand on this in another episode, but for now I want to just give you a broad feel for things before we make our way back to Japan. Japan. However, there's one other aspect of the mission I want to talk about before the end. Everywhere the Japanese went, they were greeted with a sort of paternalistic dismissal, an attitude of, "Ah, isn't this cute, the Japanese think they can sit at the grown-ups table. Europeans and Americans both informed the Japanese that while this new interest in civilization was admirable, true civilization was really an outgrowth of the white race and it was thus unlikely that a non-white nation could ever really attain it. This time period was the golden age of the notion of stages of civilization, that all nations exist on a sort of hierarchy of development with the white ones on top, and that such was the natural order of things. Social Darwinism and this notion of race war was still a few decades off from gaining any wide credence, But there was undeniably an attitude that the Japanese were fundamentally less suited to quote-unquote real civilization. The most optimistic European observers felt that maybe, if they really tried, Japan's leaders might attain a combination of inoffensiveness and strength on par with Sweden. Enough, in other words, to be left alone. And by the way, that's their comparison, not mine. I hear Sweden is lovely. Now this kind of patronizing attitude would have rankled anybody, of course, but it was especially bad for a bunch of samurai who came from a society where hierarchy and status was of paramount importance. Some of these samurai are going to try and compensate by basically abandoning their japanese and trying to assimilate into European culture with the greatest degree possible. Others will push back. Either way, these ingrained racial attitudes about what exactly the Japanese are capable of, and the double-edged praised for Japanese accomplishments along the lines of pretty impressive for a bunch of Japs, are going to haunt Japan's relations with the West, really up until the later 20th century, arguably even to this day. Next week, we're going to leave all this foreign business behind us and go back to Japan where we're going to start in on the domestic crisis that will bring about the final big crisis of the early Meiji period and help create the final form of the new government. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Greg McCann and Jan Hockbrook for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, Check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.